but in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The word that is used there for was is a very distinct word from the word became that we find here in John uh, chapter 1 verse 14. So this, this notion of was is an equitable idea. It's something that is always the case. It's how it has always been. Over against became, it's something new and something unique. And so there's eternal sonship. There's always been the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son, but he was not eternally human. That's something new. It says the word became flesh. It's a unique thing that actually happened in time and space and in history. He was always God, hence his eternality, but he became man, which was a unique new occurrence that has abiding and remaining results to this day. So some points that you want to affirm when you think about the incarnation, when you think about Emmanuel, God with us, you know, at Christmas time, we've sang it, we've cited it as our benediction. We talk about it. We think about it. This is not an uncommon reality for us to contemplate the idea of the incarnation. So some points to affirm, some things that we can positively say about this concept of the God man, uh, just because I'm the church history nerd guy, and it's going to benefit you more than you'll ever know when you get ready to go open presents in a minute when you go home. So from the symbol of Chalcedon in 451, one of the great creeds of the church, it says that Jesus Christ is one at the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person in subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same son and only begotten God, the word and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay. Yes. So I spent seven years reading stuff like that all the time. So basically what it's saying is, is listen, Jesus consists of two natures. He's God and he's man in the fact that he's God. He remains with all of the qualities of being God. He's eternal. He's all powerful. He's all knowing. He's all present. And with the relationship to him being man, he has all the characteristics of what it means to be a man. He's limited to time and space. He learns. He grows. He gains knowledge. And when these two natures come together in the great mystery that is the incarnation, they don't overlap each other. They don't get in each other's way. They don't confuse each other. One doesn't supersede the other. They get to coexist in a mysterious way that's unfathomable to our minds, yet is real and is true and is amazing. Amen. Okay, so you just got the South Memphis reversion of the symbol of Chalcedon from 451 A.D. So there is a both a perfect distinction and a perfect union between the two natures of Jesus Christ. So with respect to the atonement, because that's what we're moving toward. In the incarnation, we even see it in Matthew's gospel when the, there's the, the dream visitation to Joseph and he's thinking about putting Mary away. And he says, no, you will keep her. She'll, you'll, she'll stay your wife. This, this child that's with her is from the Holy Spirit. And you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, 21. And so even at his birth, 
There was an eye toward the atonement that was coming. And so this relationship of him being both God and man is a great mystery in and of itself. But it has this mystery fleshed out for us in what happens on Easter Sunday. Here's the beautiful thing. You have to have Christmas to have Easter. But Christmas doesn't mean anything if Easter didn't happen. If he didn't die and come back from the dead, he was just another guy who was born who had a cool life story and then you just move on. And so what is it that happened at that great time of the atonement in relationship to the incarnation? Christ must be God to fulfill the infinite debt incurred by our sin against the glory of God. Uh, Here's the thing, friend. You might be finite. You might be limited. You might be mortal. You might fill space and time. But your sin was against the holiness and the glory of God himself. And though you are finite, your sin had infinite ramifications because it was an affront to the eternal glory of the most high God. And so when someone came, namely Jesus Christ, to take away your sin debt, he had to have infinite worth and value as God because it was the infinite worth and value of God that was offended by your sin. So he has to be God in order for the sacrifice to be meaningful. But he also has to be man. He has to be real human for there to be an equal exchange on the cross. Man dying for man. Because we know from the scripture itself, the blood of bulls and goats can in no way suffice for sin. Because it's not the animals that were an affront to the glory of God. It was man that was made in his image. So man must give his life for man. And so how can one man who's finite in his worth give his life in an infinite sacrifice for the rest of humanity. It cannot be done if that man is merely a man, but if that man is God in the flesh, then his sacrifice is of infinite value, yet of equal worth with the one he's making sacrifice for. Friends, that's why the incarnation matters. It matters because the atonement does not work if it is not Emmanuel, God with us. And it's magnificent. It's wonderful. Now, some pitfalls that we should avoid. When you're talking about the incarnation, you're talking about Jesus being the God man. You have to be careful not to think that Jesus was more divine than he was human. That's false. He wasn't 75 percent God and 25 percent human. That's not how that works. He wasn't 99 percent God and 1 percent human. Let me go ahead and mess with all of the math teachers in the room. He was 100 percent God and 100 percent man. You say, Philip, that, that, that doesn't work. I know. That's why it's called a mystery. That's the beautiful thing of it. If I could fully comprehend it and understand it, I'd move on. This is, most religions in the world are really easy to understand. Not this one. This is a profound mystery. So we need to avoid that he was more divine than he was human. But we also need to avoid the, the, the false concept that he was more human than he was divine. Well, he was mostly man. And he had a little bit of God in him. No, that's not how that works. We also have to avoid what, what is more common, that Jesus was somehow a strange blending of a God man. Like, like the God part and the man part came together and kind of mixed him up in a mixing bowl. And you stuck him in an oven and out came this God man morphing of a thing. You can't really find the God. You can't really find the man. There's some sort of weird blending between the two. That's not the case either. 
And you also have to avoid the idea that, that Jesus suffered from some sort of divine human multiple personality disorder, bouncing back between being divine and being human, depending on how the circumstance struck him. That's not how it was either. You say, well, Philip, how was it? I can reread the symbol of Chalcedon if I need to, but let's, let's not do that. Just know that this is a profound mystery. That somehow the infinite, sovereign, all-present, eternal, almighty God was simultaneously present in a living human being who filled and occupied real time and space. And at the same time was limited to time and space while being outside of time and space all at the same time. So Philip, that makes absolutely no sense. And this is where the old patristic writers, when they would talk about the incarnation, would stop mid-sentence in their writing and just begin to just to just to just unexpectedly write out praises in their writing, thanking God for the great glory that is the incarnation and how profound this mystery is and how worthy of worship a God would be that would be this way. Which is what we've been singing about for the last five weeks. In our church services. We've been singing songs of praise to God. For the great mystery of the incarnation. God with us. And it's incredible. There's some scriptural affirmations listed there in your notes. I would encourage you to go and look at those later. Philippians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 1. They all speak to this great concept of the mystery. Now I want you to see from our one verse that we're looking at today. In John chapter 1 verse 14. Midway through. And there's this. This notion of, 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 of walking with God, not, not walking with God in a spiritual sense, like my walk with God as I read and as I pray, but there's this, this humanity is getting to walk with God because God is walking with us in the incarnation, actually in real time and space. It says that he dwelt among us. And what's what's really cool is that the actual Greek word there is the Greek word in verb form for tabernacle. He tabernacled with us. You say Philip tabernacle is a noun, it's not a verb. Yeah, but you remember how they used the tabernacle? It wasn't permanent. What did they do with the tabernacle when they were wandering all over the desert before they had a permanent place? God's presence would move to a spot and it would stop. And then they'd set the tabernacle up there and they'd stay there until God's presence moved and went someplace else. And then they'd break the tabernacle down and they'd move it until God's presence stopped. And then they'd set it up. You know what they were doing? They were tabernacling with God. Here's the difference. In the incarnation of Jesus Christ, rather than us tabernacling with God, God has come and he has tabernacled with us. He has brought his divine presence and his glory into our time and space in physical form. That's what he has done. He has come and he has dwelt with us temporarily, which is the idea of tabernacling. This is what has happened. God among man dwelling among us. In other words, Jesus lived a real life. Please stop getting your theology from the History Channel. Don't do that. Those historical Jesus guys, don't do that. 
One of those guys came to my seminary when I was in the PhD program and he gave a lecture. We, we affectionately called it invite a heretic to school for a day. And, and, you know, and they would come and they would talk and we'd have to ask these questions. And basically what they were trying to teach us to do was to remain calm under pressure and not like lose your cool and blow your witness when somebody came in and said it was just ridiculous nonsense. And it only takes a couple of like intelligently worded questions to blow all that stuff apart that they put up there on the TV. Anybody, anybody, anybody that would dare say to you that they're not sure a person named Jesus ever actually lived in the first century that the Christian religion is based of does not know how to do history at all. Even the most stark agnostics and atheists in the world have to affirm that there's enough credible historical evidence that the person that we call Jesus actually lived probably in Palestine in the first century. Like, they don't have to believe in any of the stuff that he did. They don't have to believe that he's God and they don't have to trust in the gospel. But you got to at least affirm that he was a real person. Jesus lived a real life. He was a real guy. He really was here. And he did real work. He did real things on this earth while he was here. He was not a mere phantom and he was not some myth of religious history. He was a real person in real time and in real space. And I can affirm to you this morning, friends, that he was who he said that he was. Scriptural affirmation for that, you find it in Luke 2, 7, Galatians 4, 1 John 1, 1 through 3. And then notice what happens as we shift toward the back end of verse 14. Not only did the word become flesh, this great mystery of the incarnation, and not only was God walking with us, tabernacling with us, living a real life among us, he dwelt among us. But we're also, because of the presence of Jesus Christ, we are seeing the glory of God. Notice here in the third part of verse 14, it says, And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Now, this includes seeing things in Jesus' actual life that we have historical testimony of in the scriptures. They make mark of his miracles that were performed. They make mark of his righteous life, how he walked, the way he lived. And, 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 the, and, the, and the way he fulfilled the law of God outwardly. Of course, this in past his birth includes the crucifixion and the resurrection and the great testimonies that we have from multiple sources of, of Jesus having died on the cross and having been raised from the dead, thus demonstrating himself, as Paul said in Romans chapter 1, to be the Son of God with power because of the resurrection from the dead. This is the great affirmation. And listen, hear me this morning. Some of you are skeptics. Some of you more severely than that are cynics. And some of you are just visiting here because your family is here and this is not normally your thing. But know this. You can have all of the doubts that you'd like. All of them. But if the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is true... Your skepticism does not matter. I don't know if I could have said that any more plainly. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is true, your skepticism does not matter. 
Because he came back from the dead. He showed the world that he is who he said he was and that he did what he said he was going to do and that what he demands of us, he has every right to demand of us because he himself in his own power overthrew death. So you can be as skeptical as you'd like to be. But if you come to the conclusion that the resurrection is true, Everything else about Jesus's life is true. Everything. This is the thing that has, I'll just be plain with you because I know a lot of people struggle with a lot of stuff. This is the thing, my whole Christian life that has kept me in the faith because I'm very much a skeptic and very much a cynic. It's just something that Jesus keeps saving me from on a regular basis, day by day. And I can't get past the fact That Jesus rose from the dead. And no other argument, no other doubt, no other concern, no other frustration, no other worry, no other trepidation that I might have about the rest of the faith comes anywhere close to trumping the fact that he walked out of the tomb. Which means no matter what I look back on in the life of Jesus that I might have concerns about, those concerns must give way to the fact that he has declared the Son of God with power because of the resurrection from the dead. And friends, they saw his glory. Friends, you you, you don't see anything more glorious in the earthly life of Jesus than the fact that he was resurrected from the dead. John could have been talking about a whole lot of things here. I can guarantee you, based on how John writes the rest of his gospel, he's talking about the resurrection from the dead. That's what he's talking about. We saw his glory. What glory is that? The glory of the fact that he's the resurrected Christ and he is who he said he was. Because if you look at all the rest of John's writings, that's where he hangs out. Resurrection, life, Coming from death. And it's fantastic. But this also serves a greater purpose. This idea of seeing the glory. The glory of the only begotten of the father. It also serves a greater purpose of meaning. Talking about the total triune involvement. In the incarnational life of Jesus Christ. The father sent the son into the world. We see that in John chapter 6 verse 57. The son does the will of the father. We see that in John 4.34. John 5.30. John 6.38 and 39. And the spirit gives new birth to men by. By uh, means of the work of the son, we see that in John 3, 5 through 8 and John 6, 63. So there's a centrality of Christ in all of the cosmos by the work of the triune God. Jesus is the manifestation of the glory of God. That's what he is. Do you want to see the glory of God in physical form? Then you look upon Christ. That's what you do. That's how you see the glory of God. And there's tons of scriptural affirmation for that. Hebrews 1, Colossians 1, Ephesians 1, Revelation 3, Revelation 5, and a whole host of other places. And so this great mystery of the incarnation... The curtain starts to be peeled back when we look past the birth of Christ and to the death and resurrection of Christ. And we see the power of the atonement and we see the glory of the triune God 
in the manifest form of the physical person of Jesus Christ, which leads us then at the end of this, the last part of verse 14, to the marvel of the incarnation, why we should glory in it and praise God for it. The incarnation, hear me this morning, friends, the incarnation contains the fullness of the gospel. The fullness of the gospel is found in the very act of the incarnation itself. You say, well, how how is that possible? How is that possible? Well, notice what John says here about this word becoming flesh and dwelling among us and us seeing his glory, the glory of the only begotten. Well, what did they see? They saw that he was full of grace and truth. That's what we see. The two key elements of the gospel for us, grace and truth, grace as defined by the complete word study dictionary of the New Testament says that grace is a favor done without expectation of return. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. A favor done without expectation of return. What are you going to do in return to the father for saving you through his son from your sins? That's it. Praise his name. And guess what? You should have done that anyway. You're not paying God back by praising him. He has saved you that you might fulfill your function that you had originally as an image bearer, which was to reflect the praise, worthiness and the glory of God in the first place, which you could not do while you were living in your sin. He has done a great work for you that you cannot pay him back for. That's called grace. And this notion of grace is absolutely free expression of the loving kindness of God to men. Finding its only motivation in the bounty and benevolence of the giver, it is unearned and unmerited favor. That's what grace is. And what is truth? Truth is a firm and certain presentation of things as they really are, whether historical, physical, or spiritual. When Jesus Christ came in his incarnate form and demonstrated his glory through crucifixion and resurrection, he was demonstrating to the world grace, God's favor toward man to save them, and truth. This is how things really are. And how are things really? What are things really like? Here's the facts, friend. You want the truth. This is the truth. We are all left to ourselves without the intervention of God. Abject and wretched sinners worthy of the wrath of God. That's the truth. That's how it is. But what has Christ done? Christ in his great love for us. God in his great love for us through Christ. What has he done? He has come and shed his own blood for our souls. That his people, it's built into his name, Jesus, Yeshua. We translate it from the Hebrew in the Old Testament as Joshua. And it means the Lord God saves. Jesus Christ, the one who saves his people from their sins. That's what he does. That's the truth. But like, I, 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 
I don't like the way my life is. I don't like the way my life's going. I don't like the addictions that I have. I don't like the struggles that I have. I don't like the suffering that I have. I don't like the pain that I have. I don't like how there's this good that I want to do and I don't do it. And there's this bad that I want to stop doing and I can't stop doing it. I am struggling and I'm striving and I keep failing. And I feel like my life is supposed to be more than what it is. And every time I try to do more, it comes short. And every time I feel like I have succeeded, I feel like I need more and I can never scratch that itch that is deep down inside of me and I feel like my life is empty and meaningless and and just full of, of just struggle and pain and sorrow. Friends, that's called living in your sin. And what has the Lord Jesus Christ come to do? He's come to give you life and life abundant. That's the truth. Grace and truth. That's what He's come to do. In the incarnation, we have the picture of The gospel and friends, Jesus is the totality, the fullness, the completeness of these things. He's full of it. That's that language. He's full of grace and truth. He is the embodiment of the gospel. There are two necessary truths and two necessary truths that we will close on this morning. First, apart from the grace of God, uh, of God that we find in Jesus Christ. This incarnation of Christ, God sending Christ into the world. Apart from the grace we find in God sending and giving Christ to us, there is no hope for us. None. That's, that's fact number one. That's two, truth number one. Without the incarnation, without this merciful act of the triune God sending the second person of the Godhead into time and space as Emmanuel, God with us. If this event does not occur, there is no hope for us. Second necessary truth. Apart from the truth of who Christ is, the God man, the one who can make sacrifice for our sins, the one of infinite worth to appease the wrath of God. And the one of finite connection who took on flesh and dwelt among us. Without that truth, being that truth, there is no hope for us. Friends, when we celebrate Christmas, we don't celebrate Christmas with some sort of softened notion of the birth of a baby and a hard story about a teenage girl and a difficult social circumstance and having to be outside with animals and we don't turn this into some sort of social journey, some study in sociology and ethics and sociocultural, political race relations between the Roman Empire and the Hebrew people. We, we don't do that's not what the story is about. When we contemplate Christmas, God sending his son into the world. We should have an eye to the cross. Because friends, he was born to die. That he might rise again and set his people forever free. So the incarnation is a great mystery. But the parts that God has revealed to us in his word that we can understand should cause us to marvel and worship his name at his goodness to us that he has saved us this way.
So as you leave today and you get ready to celebrate Christmas, try to keep at the front of your mind this great mystery, this great marvel, this great praise-worthy thing that God has done for us. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending the God-man into the world to live a flawless and perfect life, completely in keeping with your law, that he might die a death he did not deserve so that he could mercifully give us life we could never earn. Praise his glorious name. Amen.